Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. Now, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the creation account of how God created this world out of nothing and how the, the earth that was formless and void over that one-week period, he formed it and then he filled it. And then on day six, we saw he created man, which was the very crown of his creation and how God created man in his own image. And then last week, particularly, we saw on day seven of how God rested from uh, creating uh, everything because he had finished that work of creation and he rested. I just want to quickly pick up on something from there because a few of you had come to me asking some very good questions. And I just want to reiterate some of the things that we looked at last week See, day seven of creation is very important because that was the very goal of creation. And we saw how the very absence of, uh, there was no evening, there was no morning, even though it was a literal 24-hour day, and that would keep going on. This rest of God, where God where God is delighting in all of his creation as he communes with man perfectly, as man communes back with him, and all of creation is perfectly reflecting his glory. He is pleased by it, and he's enjoying it, and all of creation was meant to enter into this perpetual rest. That was the very goal for which God created everything that they would rest in God and enjoy Him and enjoy the blessings of the fullness of life that He gives. But we saw how as we move through the pages of Scripture, as sin came into that world, into this world, that perpetual rest came to a halt. And we saw, uh, you know, how then Uh, Moses picks up on this and institutes, um, God, through Moses, institutes the law, observing the Sabbath day, which was the fourth commandment. And we saw how it doesn't particularly apply to the Christians, because just as circumcision was to the Abrahamic covenant, and the Israelites were to observe that, keeping the Sabbath on the seventh day, which is uh, on a Saturday, was a sign of the Mosaic covenant. That was the external sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And so then we saw, as we traced and then came to the New Testament, how we are not to particularly keep, these were all shadows uh, pointing ultimately to Jesus Christ. And then we saw in Hebrews 4 of how, how there's the mention of entering into that eternal rest, how for those who trust in Jesus, it is a present reality and something that is to come. And we saw even Jesus, you know, as he was on this earth, he says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so the, the practical application for us as Christians is not fundamentally, oh, I need to take a break, or I need to go on vacation. Because most times, I think when people think about it, they simply speak of physical rest. 
Or sometimes people confuse it with the Lord's Day, and we saw that there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says the seventh day, which was the Sabbath day, always the seventh day, which is the Saturday, never shifted to the Lord's Day, which was the first day of the week. And it also has nothing to do with, as some people may say, oh, that means on Sunday you shouldn't go shopping, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. It has nothing to do with any of that fundamentally. What it does mean is resting in God. And as we live as people who have already entered into this eternal rest, is in all that we do that we enjoy God and glorify God. So whether it be our work, whether we be at home, whether we are uh, just relaxing at home or doing heavy labor, in all that we do, we are resting in God and enjoying Him and reflecting Him. That is what is fundamentally at the core of resting in God and what the goal of creation was to enter into that eternal rest. And that's what we will do finally in the millennial kingdom and then finally into, uh, all, through all of eternity, we will experience that. Where yes, we will do some form of work. We will do other things as well. But it's that idea of resting in God and enjoying Him and enjoying the life that He's given and giving glory to Him. Okay, so... Now that, so that was the first seven days of creation. Now we come to a different section of creation after these seven days. And in fact, liberal scholars would look at the rest of chapter two and say that, oh, look, this is a second account of creation written by a, a, a different author because different words are used and there are things in chapter 2 that seem to contradict chapter 1. And really, but I would say this, when we look at chapter 2, as we progress on in chapter 2, and some of it we'll look at even this morning, that there is nothing contradictory about the second chapter. It's not some other creation account. It's merely focusing on God's, uh, the crown of God's creation, mankind itself. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, zooms in on day six now, and in particular, the creation of man, and gives more details. And look, and it's not just the amplification of day six and particular focus on man, although it will teach us a few more things uh, of what happened on that day. But the primary purpose of this expanded view of day six in chapter two is not just additional information, but it's intended to tell you and me what began to happen to God's creation. Okay, so if that's what happened in the first seven days, okay, now God, under, Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is saying, okay, now let's zoom in on that day six and let's see how things panned out from there. And what we'll see in this chapter is what did it look like 
for the man and the woman when God created them? What was the garden like? What was life like in that world? And of course, it's, it's now then preparing us to that ultimate shock of what happens in chapter 3 as man rebels against God. So by way of outline, uh, we come to our first point, that's in verse 4, and I've, I've got it as the connecting title. The connecting title, verse 4. It reads, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now this verse, it serves as a transition and even as the the first heading or title for the book of Genesis after that introductory section from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 2-3. You see, the chapters that we have now in the Bible, in fact, let's just focus on the book of Genesis. Even in the book of Genesis, these chapters are not inspired meaning that it was not there in the original writing of Scripture. It was something that was added in the 16th century to help our modern minds in how the various books of the Bible and even the book in itself is organized, these chapter titles were added. But it was not part of the original writing at all. Originally, these chapters were not there, but there were other devices in the language that were used to mark out sections of the book. Now, in the book of Genesis, the phrase, the generations of, that phrase, the generations of, it serves as a heading or a title or a marker of new, of, uh, for each new section in the book of Genesis. This phrase is used 10 times in the book of Genesis, and it outlines the book according to it. So the first one is in Genesis 2.4. Then you move to Genesis 5.1. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the next breakdown. Then you come to Genesis 6.9. It says, these are the generations of Noah. And, and there we have an account of that. Then in Genesis 10.1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then Genesis 11.10, these are the generations of Shem. Genesis 11.27, now these are the generations of Terah. Genesis 25.12, 36.1, and it goes on and on. And, uh, there's 10 in total, which essentially divide the book of Genesis into 10 different sections. And what you'll see in these passages that follow this phrase, that there is the, the phrase, the generations of, following that phrase, there's either usually a genealogy of that person, or some narrative related to that person. So for example, Genesis 11:27, where it says, the generations of Terah, it shows the family tree of Terah. And then it begins to, it finally ends up in the life of Abraham. Because that's what became of Terah. That's the family history of Terah, ultimately. So what it shows is what became of that person's family line. The term generations, uh, in the Hebrew, it's toledoth in the original. 
And it comes from a word that means to, to beget or to bear or to bring forth. So it can be translated as uh, descendants of or, or generations of. But not just in the sense of a genealogy, but it can also be in the sense of, okay, what came forth? What became of that person? So that's why in some translations you even have it translated as the history of, or the account of, or the record of. As in the, the history or the, or the family history of that person. The account of that person, what became of that person, the record of that person. Now remember, Adam and Eve, they didn't have parents. They were created, they were the first humans directly created by God. There's no other human being to point to, to say, oh, this is the history of this person, and then Adam and Eve came to be. So in Genesis 2.5, when it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, it's saying, this is the history of the universe. This is what became of the universe. In chapter 1, we saw the origin of the heavens and the earth. Now in chapter 2, we're going to see what became of it. What became of after the creation of the universe. This is the history of the world after it was created and ultimately ending up in Adam and Eve and then the story follows on. You know, one commentator pointed out that aside from outlining the book of Genesis, the phrase, the generations of, have the effect of underlining the historicity of the whole book as well. That all these things actually happened in history. These are factual things. Like I mentioned last week, there are liberal scholars that like to say that many of these accounts, you just have to just read any kind of scholarly literature, even some of the commentaries, and all the rubbish that is written, particularly of the first few chapters of Genesis. And they would say things like, oh, these accounts in Genesis didn't actually happen. They were just examples or, or stories to convey perhaps some, the, the big theological idea even. These are the generations of. What it's emphasizing is that these are not just some stories in the book of Genesis, like fables, but all these events actually took place in a moment of history. You could even say that, so then in Genesis, it has 10 historical accounts, as per that phrase, the generations of. And starting in Genesis 2.5, this is the history of what became of the world in what follows. And as history unfolds and we see God being revealed through it, we are able to understand more about who this God is and what his ways are. We understand theology in the way God interacts with history, actually interacted with this world. So this mention of the Toledot, or the generations of, it, it is pointing to the fact that there is additional information that's going to come 
from what has been said in Genesis 1 about creation. So it's providing a connection. It's not disjointed what is being said in Genesis 2. It is connected, and this is a, connected, a connecting title. Now notice also in the second half of verse 4, it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And the word here is also the word, the Hebrew word, yom. Now I mentioned to you briefly some weeks ago that some who believe in evolution point to this verse, Genesis 2 verse 4, and say, see look, it's yom here. But it's definitely not referring to a literal 24-hour period. Because it's saying, in the day God created the heavens and the earth. And we know that in Genesis 1, that's not so. But you know, those who believe in evolution will then point to this and then point back at Genesis 1. So if this is not a literal 24-hour period, then everything in Genesis 1 is also not a literal 24-hour period. How do you respond to that? Here's how you respond to it. Yes, Yom in Genesis 2.5 does not refer to a literal 24-hour day, but the context and few other things also determine the meaning of Yom. In Genesis 1, there is mention of there was evening and there was morning, and it points to a literal 24-hour period. Whenever a number is used, and this is without exception, Whenever a number is used next to this word yom or day in the Bible, like one day or the second day or 40 days or, or whatever, whenever a number is attached to this word, it always refers to that period of 24 hours. And notice here in Genesis 2.5, it says, in the day. That expression, in the day, is actually a Hebrew idiom, bayom, which simply means when. Another example of this you will see in Numbers 3.1, where it says, These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. So where it says, at the time when the Lord spoke, that whole phrase, at the time when, it's the same word there, bayom, meaning when. And we know from other parts of scripture that how long was Moses on Mount Sinai? 40 days and 40 nights. It was not just a single day. In fact, the King James Version translates it very literally where it translates it as in the day when the Lord spoke with Moses. But the NIV paraphrases it because that's what it means. The NIV says when the Lord spoke with Moses because that's what it means. So this is what, coming back to Genesis 2.5, this is what became of, or this is the history of creation when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. That's what Genesis 2.5 is saying. In the day or when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Another thing to notice in verse 4 is how God is described. Look there how God is described. It's written there, Lord God. 
There's an added term there, L-O-R-D, caps. This is the, the name Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, and it's used 20 times in Genesis 2 and 3. And the combination of this also shows that there is a connection to Genesis 1, but there is also going to be a shift in the focus. In Genesis 1, he is simply referred to as God or Elohim, which is creator God, the God of gods, the almighty, the all-powerful creator God, the, the sovereign one. And we saw in Genesis 1 of how God powerfully created the entire universe by the power of his word and rested on the seventh day, reigning over everything that he has made. So, it, so that word Elohim spoke of his sovereignty and of his power, almighty power, as creator God. Now, Lord or Yahweh, on the other hand, is the covenant name of God. It's the name that he revealed to the people of Israel. It's his personal name. And what it indicates is that God has a, whenever God reveals himself this way as Yahweh, it reveals that God has a special relationship with that person or people. And so bringing the two names together, Yahweh, Elohim, Lord, God, this is, this is not that common in the Old Testament. And yet, 20 times in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, this combination is used. And I think it's making clear two things. On the one hand, as the Israelites are hearing this, remember context where Israelites are? They've, they've come out of the land of Egypt. They're about to enter the promised land, uh, you know, and Moses is giving the first five books, including Genesis. So as they're hearing this, they would have immediately connected the fact that Yahweh, our personal God, the, pers the, the God who is in covenant relationship with us, and we are in covenant relationship with him, this same God is the same creator God. He is Elohim. Elohim is Yahweh, and Yahweh is Elohim. But I think also it hints at the fact that right from the beginning, this all-powerful God, he was not a distant God. No, he was a personal God. A God who was near his people. A God who was in close relationship with the first man. And really pointing at the fact that there's going to be an intimate relationship between God and man. That's what it's, that, that shift is coming and it's pointing toward. And so, even in this sense, it shows that there's a connection between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. By using the name Elohim, which was used in Genesis 1, and now a new term is added saying, okay, so we're connected, but there's going to be a shift in the focus. One last thing to notice in this title is the very last part of verse 4. It says, Earth and the heavens. The order is swapped around. 
Because it starts by saying God created the heavens and the earth, and that's the normal pattern. And then Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then repeats it and then ends it by saying, and the earth and the heavens. And what this, re- the, what this reversal is pointing to is again, now there's going to be a shift in focus. Yes, we talked about the heavens and the earth. That was Genesis 1. Now there's going to be a shift in focus, particularly on earth. And particularly on mankind. So that's what it's, it's showing. This, this very title is saying, no, the, what is happening in Genesis 2 is not disjointed from Genesis 1. It's all connected. And this very title points to that. And, and really the significance of this title and even all of chapter 2 is, like I said, it's not just that he is sovereign and a powerful creator, but that he's intimate with his creation, in particularly mankind. That he draws close to man. Now this is a very foreign concept to the, to the pagan religions, the, the nations that surrounded Israel. See, because for them, they're false gods. Yes, yes they, were, they were powerful gods, but they were very distant deities. And even if they did anything, it was either to punish people or because they got angry with people or whatever they did, ultimately it was for their benefit. You know, there was no care or anything for man at all. Man was never a beneficiary. It was all, there was no reference to his creatures, nothing for the benefit of its creatures. It was all for those gods and their selfish needs. Totally distant and no intimacy with God. You know, the, 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 the nations really just knew their false gods as these powerful beings who are probably doing things in the world, but they could never get close to their gods let alone know their gods. But what Moses is reminding the Israelites and even us is our God is different. Yes, he is powerful, sovereign creator of this world. He is Elohim. He is the God of gods. But he is also an intimate God who draws close to his people who comes close to mankind. And so that's what we learn from verse 4 and our first point, the connecting title. Secondly, the complete world that we look at or the complete environment. That's in verses 5 and 6. And what this serves is really to provide a backdrop as to what the world or the land looked like before man was created. You know, what did things look like even before man came into the picture? Let's just read verse 5 and 6. It reads, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, when you read this at first, you might be thinking, what is this talking about? I mean, is this contradicting uh, what is said in Genesis 1? I mean, didn't God on day three make all the trees and the plants and its seeds and its fruits? But it seems like over here, none of these things were there. I mean, what's going on and God's going to create man? Some people try and resolve this by saying, see, there seems to be a contradiction here. And so what they do is they bring in other things like evolution and long periods of time. They say, it's not a historical account, what happened in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and so forth. They just, you know, it's just a story just to give the big idea. It didn't actually happen. But this can't be further from the truth when we look at the plain reading of Scripture. What we have is not a contradiction of day three. In fact, if you remember on day three, remember the specific things that God made on, on day three with regards to vegetation? Genesis 1.11, let's just look at that. There's vegetation, that's just a general term for plants and sometimes even used for grass. Then you have plants that bore seeds, and then you have trees that bore fruits. Now in Genesis 2.5, which is supposed to be an expansion of day six, it says, what's the first term used there? The bush of the field. That's a very different term. It refers to wild shrubs or, or desert shrubs. In fact, turn to uh, Genesis 21. You know, this is Genesis 21:15. Here, you hear about Abraham's servant Hagar, who he had child with, and this is the account of when they were sent away, and Hagar is with her son. This is what it says in Genesis 21:15. Pardon me. When the water in the skin was gone in the little skin water bag that they had. She put the child under one of, one of the bushes. This is, they're in the wilderness, in the desert. So th this, this is some kind of wild, prickly bush. You know, some kind of a thorny, big uh, bush, and these are quite common if you've visited the Middle East anytime or even seen pictures of the Middle East, especially the desert regions, you'll see these big thorny bushes. And a similar kind of shrub or bush is mentioned in Job 37 as well. So what this is most likely referring to is wild vegetation, like with thorns and thistles and so on. So that's one of the things that are mentioned in Genesis 5, where it says that is not present, these kind of plants, these kind of bushes. Now the second thing that is not present is small plants. But notice it's further qualified as small plants off the field. 
important qualification, of the field. Not just plants in general, plants of the field. Now the field could be a reference to open land or pasture or even cultivated land. And I, I, I would think it would make more sense to take this as cultivated land. And this is a reference to cultivated plants, plants of the field, plants that need cultivation. So the first group is wild, uncultivated, thorny, thistle kind of vegetation. The second group is cultivated plants. And we get the full significance of this as we read a little forward after man rebels against God and God curses man and the ground. And this is what we read in Genesis 3, 18 and 19. Look at Genesis 3, 18 and 19. Thorns and thistles, synonymous with what? The bush of the field in Genesis 2.5. It shall bring forth for you. So this happened after the fall. And then you shall eat the plants of the field. Same wording as Genesis 2.5. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Now just keep focusing on verse 18 and 19 there, and note the parallel there is about eating the plants of the field and eating bread. Or in other words, plants of the field refer to plants which require cultivation to produce bread. Things like wheat and barley and corn and rice and so on. So there were thorns and thistles and weeds that came out from the ground, and man had to work hard by the sweat of his brow. Food was not readily available to him. He had to cultivate the ground and toil and labor to get food. But this is what happened after the fall. Now, does this mean uh, that man didn't have to work before the fall? No, it, it doesn't, and we'll look at what kind of work uh, man had before the fall. But what we can say is this. Man did not have to sweat and cultivate the ground to get food before the fall. Food was readily available to him. He didn't have to toil and till the ground to get food. Now turn back to Genesis 2.5. Notice another word there. Yet. No bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field was yet sprung. And this is to show that the land at the time was very different from the land that we know now or even from the land that the Israelites knew then. It's saying that the land at the time it did not bear the effects of the sin and the curse. It was in a pre-fall state. There were no thorns and thistles and weeds yet. There were no cultivated crops of the field yet. They had not yet come into existence. Now we're given two reasons why this was the case. And it follows the same order as the previous two phrases. Why was there no bush 
nor thorns, thistles yet? Answer, second half of verse five. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. So what this implies is that rain came only after the fall. Before the fall, God had a different way of supplying water. It was a constant supply of water, and we'll look at that in a few minutes. But after the fall, the way God supplied water for the lands was through rain. Now think about this. When do you get desert shrubs with thorns and thistles and things like cacti and so on? When do you get that? Or where do you get that? In a desert where there is not much water. And the thorns and thistles, they help to conserve water for the plants. So after the fall, when God replaced the supply of water the way he did that with rain. Rain is more sporadic, it's more uneven. So now you have areas of land that get more water and some areas of land that get very little water. So then what happens? You have droughts, you have famine, you have some very arid deserts as well. And so that's where you find your desert shrubs with thorns and thistles and cacti and so on. And when the rains did come, even things like weeds started coming up after the fall. So all of this happened after the fall. So there were no desert shrubs and bushes with thorns and thistles because God had not caused it to rain. God had a different way to regularly supply water before the fall. Now, the other thing that was mentioned there was that there were no cultivated plants of the field. And you say, why? The last part of verse 5 answers that for us, which is, there was no man to work the ground. You see, before the fall, there was absolutely no need for man to till the ground, to plant the seeds uh, you know, in rows and, and, and wait for the crops through hard toil and labor. There was no need to do all of that because food was so readily available from the plants and the trees that God had provided. Remember on day three, Genesis 1, 11 and 12, God created plants and trees that would what? Naturally reproduce themselves by seeds alone. So no cultivation was required, no tilling was required. And these are the same plants that are then provided as food for man. So there, is no need, there was no need for man to till the ground for food, and so there was also no cultivated plants in the field at the time. Now, in case you're wondering, so does that mean that there were no grains like wheat and barley and rice and corn before the fall? I would say... You know, there were probably isolated varieties of it in the wild, but as one commentator put it, they were not found in the form that is known to us now. So it was probably in some other form, not in the form that we know now. So rain came after the fall. 
Tilling the ground came after the fall. And as a result, there are no thorns and thistles or cultivated grain. Instead, the trees and plants naturally reproduce themselves by seed alone. There was an abundance in supply, and there were no thorns and thistles limiting its growth. Food didn't need to be cultivated, and this was the setting of the pre-fall state. That's the kind of land it was. Now, if you're wondering, okay, so if there was no rain, then what was the water supply like in the pre-fall state? Verse 6 tells us about the kind of water supply the land had before the fall. Look at verse 6. And a, mist, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. The word for mist there, it can be translated as uh, even as just water or stream or spring. Uh, I, I like the translation of spring or even stream as it best fits the context. Or as some commentators have said, subterranean freshwater streams. Freshwater streams that are just below the surface of the earth. And, and, and just think about the immediate context, verses 10 to 14. You know, there, there's going to be mention of rivers and so on and so forth. So then in that context, it would best seem best to translate this as either streams or springs. Subterranean streams would best fit the context. So the idea here isn't just that, you know, mist like dew came on the plants and trees. No, the idea is more like a natural irrigation system. A stream just below the surface of the earth that would moisten the soil and feed the roots of the trees and the plants. It was a constant, never-ending supply of water. Never interrupted. Nothing like the rains that are sporadic and comes and goes. This was the pre fall watering system that God had provided instead of the rain that we have now. I mean, th- think about this. The soil and the plants never needed to be watered. Never in that state. Because it was watered and it was kept moist by this natural irrigation system that God had made and it was present all the time. There was never a lack of water supply. There was never a famine or drought or anything of that sort. All over the face of the earth, this was the natural irrigation of the world at the time. The pre-fall earth, in many ways, it it was really self-sufficient and it kind of took care of itself. And, you know, it provided sustenance for life on this planet. It was the perfect world. It was a habitation that had everything that man needed. And what it speaks of is God's wonderful provision for mankind. A perfect habitation for man without any flaws, where he could thrive And this is what it looked like when God first made it. And it is in this perfect setting, this complete setting without any flaws, 
God now creates man. And here we come to our third point, the creation detail of man, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust. Pardon me. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God formed the man, it says. See, when God made the sun and the moon and the stars and all the creatures of the sea and the sky and the land, he simply spoke and they came to be. And as, as glorious and beautiful as they were, God was not personally and intimately involved in their creation. But when it comes to the creation of Adam, the first man, he's personally involved. You know, we saw in Genesis 1, 26, uh, some hint of it where God said, let us make man in our image. That there was a deliberation within the three persons of the triune God. That they, there was an attention on detail. And now we're seeing more details here. It says there, the Lord God formed the man. Again, the combination, hinting at a closeness of relationship. Yahweh Elohim. He formed the man. Now this word formed, it can mean to, to fashion, to, to craft, to, to mold something by careful design. It's a term that's referred to an artist's work. One of the ways in which this word is used in the Bible is this, to describe the activity of a porter. Uh, Isaiah 29:16. this is what it reads. This is what it says. You turn things upside down. This is talking about man when he goes away from God. You turn things upside down. Shall the porter be regarded as the clay? Porter referring to God and clay referring to man. That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, same word, say of him who formed it. Same word. He has no understanding. Job 10.9 says, remember that you have made me like clay and will return me to the dust. So one picture that you can have when you see this phrase, when you see this God-formed man, is the picture of God as a potter, with great care and personal attention, making his masterpiece, molding and shaping and making man. And listen, even here, if you really look at what the text is saying, there's no evolution going on here. I mean, God didn't just, you know, pick a monkey or an ape and say, oh, you know what, let me just, let me just tweak this animal a little bit. You know, stretch out its back a little bit. You know, give it a little, uh, a slightly bigger brain. You know, maybe shorter hands and, oh, voila. There is man. No, nothing like that happened. The text says the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. 
Man was directly and uniquely formed by the hand of God from the dust of the ground. Man wasn't a tweaked animal. There is in fact a play on words here in the Hebrew. It reads that the Lord God made Adam from the Adamah. To show man's connection to the dust or to the dirt of the ground. That he was really directly made from the ground and that connection to the ground. Uh, think about dust. I mean, it's, it's one of the most base things in this world. Almost considered useless. You know, we sweep it out of our homes to just keep our homes clean. We, we don't want it in our homes. And yet that same dust is the raw material that God used to make our bodies. It has the same basic elements. Our, our bodies have the same basic elements of the dust of the ground. Like carbon and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and calcium and so on. You know, times when we are tempted to be proud, we just need to remember this. I'm made of the dust from the ground. I, I, I mean, in my pride then, what am I going to say? Oh, you know what? My dust is better than your dust? No, it's all dust. It, it's just, you know, stuff that we sweep off. We're just made from dust, and it is to this dust that our bodies return to when we die. Being made from the dust of the earth should remind us of our frailty and our lowliness. So that was the material part of man that God made from the dust of the earth. Now we also see how man got his immaterial part. Verse 7 says, And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The picture is like this. The material part of God, uh, pardon me, the man's material part has been made from the dust of the ground. Now God almost you know, blows out his cheeks and then just blows into the nostrils of man and man comes alive and he becomes a living creature. The eternal living God who has life in himself breeds life into man and man becomes a living creature. Now Genesis 2.19 tells us that God made animals also from the ground. Genesis 7.22 says animals also have the breath of life in their nostrils. And then animals are also called as living creatures. But while there is some similarity that man has to the animals, man is unique and distinct from animals in that God formed and shaped the man directly and personally. There's an intimacy there. It is only for man that God directly breathes into his nostrils, as opposed to simply saying, let there be life now, let the animals come out from the ground. 
And what this breathing into the nostrils directly also conveys is it shows intimacy, where where there's a close and personal involvement of God in the creation of man. And really what all this intimacy language points to is that God intended man to be in close relationship with him. And what makes man unique is that although he was made from the dust of the ground, just like the animals, and man has life just like the animals, God uniquely formed man to be in close relationship with him by stamping him with the image of God. And so because of that, because man was to reflect God's image and serve God this way in the world, the, the, the material part, the, the body, is far more complex and intricately made than any animal that you can think of. But even the immaterial part too is far more complex than any immaterial part of an animal. God formed and breathed into man and man became a living creature. Man came to life. He was alive in a physical sense. Now, just something to consider here as you think about Adam. You know, Adam was in some kind of Neanderthal ape of some sort, as some of our science books would say is our, you know, was the first man. You know, he wasn't kind of like ooga booga booga booga, kind of just walking around like that. You know, trying to figure out, uh, you know, okay, how do I communicate? How do I do this? How do I do that? No, in fact, very next week we will see that man speaks and he names animals. As we come to the end of Genesis 2, we, we see that, in fact, when he sees his, his wife Eve for the first time, he breaks out into a beautiful poem. You know, very intricate language, beautiful language. You see, unlike what the evolutionists say, Adam and Eve was the most intelligent human being that ever lived. Have you ever considered that? Way more intelligent than any of us. In fact, they would make Einstein's intelligence look, you know, look like Einstein was just a little child. You say, Why? Because they were crea- when they were created, they didn't bear the effects of the fall. So think about that. They would have used 100% of their brain. The average man today uses about 10% of their brain. They would never have memory losses. They would be very strong physically, having no aches or pains or whatnot. So man was physically alive in this sense, in the fullest sense, the most intelligent being that has ever been created on the earth. But he was also alive spiritually. He wasn't dead spiritually like now. That came after the fall. So he could understand God's word when God spoke to him. And he could communicate with God. And there was this unbroken fellowship with God. And man was able to enjoy this wonderful fellowship with their creator and enjoy God. This is how God originally created man. 
Man was God's masterpiece, and God, with great care and attention, made man to bear his image and ultimately reflect his glory. Now, for the pagan religions of the day that were prevalent when this was written, Those pagan religions, as far as they were concerned, man was an afterthought for their gods. And so this, you know, this was a brand new thing for you know, people listening to this. That by the way God created man in the Bible, it tells us that God deeply cares and loves man. That man is God's treasure. But you know what? We keep moving just to the next chapter. And we see that this man rebels against God and sin and curse comes into this perfect world. And man is alienated from God. But God still shows to love and care for his masterpiece creation mankind and so in the fullness of time God sent his only son Jesus Christ to come into this world and die on the cross for the rebellion of mankind yes Jesus died for sinful people like you and me and he bore the judgment for our sake And then he rose from the dead so that all who will trust in Jesus will now bear the perfect life of Jesus. And they're accepted in God's sight and they have this wonderful relationship back with God. If you're a Christian, if you have put your trust in Jesus and you are walking according to his ways and turning daily from from your own self, this is what God has done for you. That loving creator pursued you and made you his child, even though you rebelled against him. If there's anyone here that is continuing to live a lie, maybe on the outside looking religious or trying to be religious, but really you're just living a lie. You're just living for yourself and you're living for God by trusting in Jesus. I want to tell you, can you not see the love of God? In the way that he has made you, in the way he has made this world, even though it's broken, you see some of its beauty. In the way that he has made provision for you to be in right relationship with him because of what Jesus has done. Do not spurn the love and grace of God shown to you. Because God is not just a lovey-dovey God. Oh, he's an awesome God.
he is also a righteous God. And if you continue to rebel against him and live your own life disregarding God and his offer of salvation and his offer of love, you will be condemned to eternal damnation. And you will have no excuse on that last day when Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Today is the day. Turn to Christ and believe in him. And if you believe in him, continue to trust in him and follow his ways, even though this world is broken, knowing who your savior is and where you're going, and turn from living for yourself and your selfish ways. To the believers, when we think of God's love, that he has shown for mankind, both right at the start, at creation, in the way that he made the world for man, in the way he created man, and now even, even now as we have rebelled against him and he has continued to show his love to us by sending his son for our sake, what should our response be? Simply thank you, God, and worship and giving back our imperfect love by serving him and telling him, thank you, God, our great creator and redeemer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are our creator and our redeemer. We thank you for the way you love us We just want to say thank you. Help us to never forget your love and your care for us. And help us to continue to serve you in this broken world and help us to be a beacon for you and honor you this way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.